Blaze Ball is like asking how many angels can fit on the head of a pin. <laughs> and watching real sports is is like phenomenology. Like Blaze Ball, they need to perform some phenomenological reduction. I'll say that. I'm Mark Standish, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto, where I am a junior member. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. My name is Danielle Yet, and today we're starting a new series with our resident senior member in theology, Nick Ansel. Nick teaches many courses at ICS on topics ranging from evil to classical and open theism and beyond. Nick's course, God, Sex, Word, Flesh, is taking place from 5 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time every Thursday and touches on theologies of embodiment, gender, and sexuality. You can find more information about that course on our website, and we'll talk more about embodiment, gender, and sexuality later in this series. But first, we'll introduce some other topics. Junior members at ICS all start their studies here in two foundational courses. One is Reformational Philosophy, which we recently spent some time talking to Bob Sweetman about, and the other is Biblical Foundations. These courses work side by side to put the main convictions and influences of the Reformational philosophical tradition on the table. That is, that both scripture and the world itself reveal to us who we are, who God is, and what life is about. Nick Ansel, ICS senior member in theology and a former junior member or student of ICS himself teaches this biblical foundations course every year. Today he's joining us to start a series on what these biblical foundations are. So welcome Nick. Well hello, morning. Good morning indeed. Where to begin? How might someone start reading the Bible? Well of course that's a great question and it's a huge question. The thing is, everybody should find their own way in to the text. Mm. You have to find your way in. It's not simply a matter of, you know, starting to read and then someone tells you, well, you could start here or start there. And in finding a, 
a way in that's our own. You're starting a journey through the text and with the text, and then you're looking to return back to your own life. But the way in also will come out of your own life. You don't suspend your life hmm. in order to find a way in. If you do that, you're not going to find a good entry point. So there's a kind of spiral between your life and the life of the text. The scriptures are very much, it's a journeying text. Yeah. It's to do with deep, deep orientation in and through life and to life. So your journey will allow you to see things in the biblical journey, the biblical narrative that, that others may not see. And that's a good thing. And then the biblical narrative will start to help you see things in your own life journey that you didn't see before. So you've got to bring yourself and your life mm -hmm. to the text and open up to the text. And that means bringing your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And most of scripture is narrative in its character. So it's a bit like engaging a novel or a film. And that's what I often recommend to you know members of my classes with, with scripture. You don't first and foremost need to train up as a biblical scholar mm. in order to understand scripture well or engage scripture well. Most of the skills that you will need, you'll already have them if, if you spent time watching films, mm. because many of the skills that go into making a good film and to reading a film mm. uh, will serve you extremely well reading scripture because scripture works with parallel kind of artistry. And that's, I'm saying this contrary to many of the expectations I think that we tend to have of scripture and that many preachers or even Bible expositors, you know, assume about scripture. So you just mentioned that uh, you have to bring your subconscious and each person brings something different to the text and will see different things in the text. Do you find that like each iteration of biblical foundations with new people that new things come out um, and the discussions go differently, even though you're looking over similar texts? Yes, I do. And I mean, that's what makes it sort of fun. That itself provides a little bit of a parallel to reading the scriptures hmm. too. If you're looking to read a novel, let's say, you just feel you have a need to read something. The sort of intuitive way in which you and a novel find each other is, is somewhat similar to what part of, of scripture you might start with. But the thing is, what you're looking for with a novel, I think, is the adventure of meaning. Hmm. And you can't control it. You can't predict what's going to happen, but you do want to find the right novel for you for right now. Hmm. So the scriptures are kind of like that in terms of which part is the right part for you. And then in terms of a class, the adventure of meaning is there in terms of the other people that are engaged. And I can't control that. Hmm. But really where the action is, is the stuff that you can't control. So it's not like scripture has one meaning mm. and we all have to do our best to kind of cotton on to what that is. The meaning of scripture is about directing our lives. That's what scripture is interested in. That's what God is, is interested in doing, coming alongside us in that journey and ensuring that we find a way to life. And it's like, how are the scriptures going to speak to my life? but also in a way that might resonate with how they're speaking 
to your life or what's going on in terms of what you might be picking up with uh, the text in terms of the dialogue between its story and your story and the resonance between that and what's going on in my life. And I use the word resonance because it's like there are going to be all these connection points, mm. but you don't know what they're going to be mm. ahead of time. It's not the case, I don't think, that let's say the Bible basically gives us a ton of principles and then you just figure out, well, how do you apply them mm. to your lives? And well, my application is going to be mine. Your application is going to be yours. They, they may be quite different, but we're going to agree on the principle. That's not the best way to name the resonance between how scripture speaks to you and how it speaks to me. But that is a dominant model. Hmm. So we'll return to that. But for now, let's stick with the beginning. Um, and so starting with Genesis, what are some things that the book of Genesis reveals about the narrative of the rest of the Bible? Right. Great question. thing about reading Genesis or any biblical book is, first of all, it really helps us to read holistically. Hmm. So read in chapters, read in you know, blocks of material, but, but don't just read a few verses and then stop. At least read within a chapter. And also where the chapter divisions fall in our different translations usually those are helpful but they're not always so don't feel obliged to stop at the end of a chapter so read holistically and also look for nuance now the kind of the coherence of the whole and then the surprises of the nuances that's the two sides or two sides among many sides perhaps of the artistry mm. of the bible so look for artistry and we usually don't do that because we perhaps imbibe this assumption that the Bible is a book through which God demands our obedience. Mm. And so God lays out certain imperatives. And the imperatives are going to be clear and straightforward because they're instruction. Um, one of the ways in which our English translations tend to let us down is the numerous references to God asking for obedience are better translated as God asking for, let's say, Israel or the people of God to hear what is being said. Hmm. So God implores the people to hear, and that is often translated as to obey. Hmm. That is not a good translation of what's there in the Hebrew. Ironically, the word obedience and its older meanings, going back into the history of English, was much closer to hearing. Hmm. But now I just don't think that's the case. So hearing and heeding, that's what God implores us to do, to really hear what God is really saying. Can you really get to the depth of the meaning of, of what's being declared here? So the artistry of scripture is geared to God calling us and inviting us to really, really hear and heed the word of life. So a couple of ways to help pick that up is to look for a certain kind of coherence and a certain kind of nuance. And then the scriptures become a different book. So one of the things I think might help is if I give an example. Yeah. Um, so the opening words of Genesis are really, really well known. 
I'm just going to read the first few verses, actually. This is the New Revised Standard Version. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God, and then there's a note to say, uh, or the spirit of God, because uh, the Hebrew means that too, swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So that's just the first two and a half verses. And what happens if you read that holistically? And that means that you slow down and instead of thinking, well, I've heard that before, mm -hmm. it's familiar, but it needs to become unfamiliar. So you have a reference there to the spirit hovering over the waters. So what do we do with the darkness over the face of the deep? And we tend to think, well, that just means everything is dark before there's light. But there's a bit more going on than that, because if you read holistically, I think you can start to be open to the idea that there's a parallel between the darkness over the face of the deep and the spirit over the face of the waters. Hmm. What if those two phrases are linked and are somewhat in parallel? So if there's a reference to the spirit of God, the darkness, is that not a way of naming the presence of God in the beginning? Hmm. And then what happens is the let there be light is then is a light that comes out of the darkness. So the darkness is not this uh, neutral reference of nothingness or whatever, but is actually part of the mystery of God. Hmm. And you could form that idea just by wondering whether there's a parallel between the spirit over the waters and the darkness over the face of the deep. And then if you keep reading through Genesis and through what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books, um, eventually you come to Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book. But I want to read something from Deuteronomy 5 and verse uh, 22 onwards. Um, so this is Moses recounting. These words Yahweh spoke with a loud voice to your whole assembly at the mountain, out of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness. And he added no more. He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you approached me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Lord, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and greatness. And we have heard his voice out of the fire. And then, and then it goes on. But it's quite clear that this glory, this burning, comes out of the darkness. Hmm. What's going on in Deuteronomy is this is echoing the beginning of Genesis, where God says, let there be light. And the light comes out of darkness. So the darkness is a reference to the divine presence, as it is here in Deuteronomy. By the time you get to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, Paul says this, For it is the God who said, and then this is put in quotation marks, actually, in, in my translation here. 
Let light shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is definitely reading the Deuteronomy passage together with the beginning of Genesis in hmm. that way. The original darkness is pretty much the first reference to God. But from the darkness comes light. And the light is God's glory. Hmm. And this theme then starts to unfold. But the, the darkness is a sign of something is about to happen. And then the way the days, you read the days, well, it's always, there was evening, there was morning. So it's each day starts with the darkness and then the light. And that is reproducing this pattern of the darkness of God, the light of God. Hmm. Many commentators will say, well, evening, morning, that's the way they figured out, you know, the days and stuff, just different, a different order from us. But it's more than that. Hmm. This is grounded in this opening reference to the darkness of God. But it, it changes the beginning. Hmm. Right? Instead of God being just light that bursts in to dispel the darkness, God's glory comes out of the mystery of of the darkness. And the darkness is a sign of something is about to be born. Hmm. That's one of the most important things to to catch is to adjust the vibe. The spirit in which this is written and which we should pick it up. You know, is this an authoritarian text that's telling us what to do? Or is this God sharing something and calling on us to really, really hear and to dispel the false images of God that we've had? Hmm. So I can imagine someone hearing your perspective for the first time and them being confused about like why we have the Bible. They might ask, why is the Bible so confounding when we have a good God who like wants us to live well? Why doesn't he just tell us how to live if it is not if it's hearing and not obeying? In my class with you, like we often got onto the topic of like the pedagogy of scripture and how the difficulty of the scripture like wrestling with it is actually how you're supposed to engage with it that's how you learn and are formed as opposed to like receiving commands yeah i have a phrase that i like to use in that context wisdom calls for wisdom but, but wisdom calls forth wisdom mm. so um wisdom is a word that should not intimidate anybody this is not esoteric. This is not about being intellectual. It's not about being educated. It's like the patience with which you should engage scripture, just being open. And it's not about having intellectual skills, but basic openness. The skills that you need and the attitude that you need, it's like getting to know a person really well. You can pick up a lot about somebody within the first minute of meeting them. But you never stop getting to know someone. It's ongoing. Hmm. So why would scripture be any different? Why would God be any different? 
it's not that if you spend a lifetime with somebody, that means you look back and you can't trust your relationship with them in the first year, as if you didn't know anything then. That's not true. You did know. But it's a journey. And once you started the journey, you are on the journey. Hmm. So earlier you talked about how different people will bring different eyes to the text. So what do we do with different readings of the text? And what maybe makes one or another truer? Or what if they even oppose each other? How do we reconcile that? That's a great question. Um, Because I think we have to say simultaneously, there are bad readings of scripture, and some of them are very bad. Mm. And we need to not be beholden to them, not be intimidated by them so that we feel we have to go along with them. But also, there's more than one true reading. Because a true reading is one that picks up on what God is saying to us through Scripture, because the Scriptures are God-speaking literature. So you haven't heard Scripture as Scripture until you've embodied that in your life, taken it into your heart, and allow it to come out. Mm. So the true reading is the one that's attuned to God-speaking. But what God says to me is going to be different in some ways, although not totally different, from what God says to us, or what God says to everybody, or what God is saying to non-Christians who are on the edge of becoming Christians, perhaps, or what God is saying to Christians who are too settled in their ways, what God is saying to the oppressed. So that allows for different readings. So if, the, if God is really speaking to you through the scriptures, and to me through the scriptures, even though your life is different from mine, we will sense a unity of spirit. And it seems to me the unity of the spirit is very helpful and important language here, for spirit and truth are strongly connected in scripture. So the truth is the truth of the spirit, and the spirit is the spirit of truth. So it's important for Christians to nurture their sense of picking up where other people are living out of the same spirit that they attempt to live out of, Mm. whatever shape that life may take. And you can do this. You can encounter someone who says all the right things and is doing all the right things, and you know that the spirit of where they're coming from and where they're going, it, it makes you uncomfortable. The unity of the spirit is what to look for. And then we can talk about the different shape that that might take in your life, in my life, in this situation, in that situation, at this time in history, or that time in history, or at this stage in one's journey, or at a later stage in one's journey. It's not that it's the unity is found in the principle, but differs in terms of the application. I think the unity is found in the spirit in which and out of which we live. Hmm. So I'm rejecting the kind of, it's there are certain moral principles that are clearly there in the text. And then we have to figure out whether we're going to obey them or not and figure out how we're going to apply them. That looks like a recipe for agreement amongst Christians. And it has not produced agreement. It actually produces disagreement. Hmm. So that should be a sign, I think, that maybe there's something 
wrong-headed about that. Not that you can't do what it is that I'm calling for and to think in those terms. I think it's possible. So I don't want to be hang up and say, I've got the right language here and you have to use the right language or else it's going to go all wrong. I mean, there are certain ways of focusing on principle that could actually come very, very close to what it is that I'm saying. So you've just talked about how there are many true readings of scripture that depend upon the spirit in which the person is hearing scripture as opposed to having it 100% correct as to what it was intended for, as if there's one intended meaning and that they've got it. Now, how does that impact how we live today? And why does reading the Bible uh, matter? Well, in scripture, you can find something, you can find God and a sense of direction. Hmm. The scriptures can connect us to something that can change not just the world, but the many worlds in which we live. And I think that can happen when we don't control the meaning. I think the impulse to control the meaning, it's quite aligned to, to this kind of impulse, well, I need to obey God. Mm. But I think it comes out of fear. Mm. Fear needs to control. The trouble is many Christians come to the realization that scripture is important, and then they try and use scripture to control other Christians. The way in which you then convey the scriptures in terms of your attitudes, let alone what you say, is immediately conveying the wrong spirit. I can give you one or two examples that relate to the beginning of Genesis, actually. So, um, Genesis 1, verse 28, which I'll just read in the NRSV. Uh, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish see over the birds of the air, over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So again, very familiar words. In the Reformed tradition and other traditions, this is often referred to as the cultural mandate. So within that is seen the commandment to form culture and form civilization and make history, make history in covenant with God. That's, that's the first thing that God asks of us hmm. in Scripture. So the Reformed tradition has sort of been very strong on saying all of life is religion, is, is one of the phrases that's been used. It's like you know, the spirituality of life as a whole. Live life in covenant with God, and that includes all the cultural formation, civilization building activities. So all of that's well and good up to a point. But the fact that this is called a cultural mandate is something you can question hmm. if you just read the language holistically. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, dot, dot, dot. So it's a blessing which then becomes a benediction. It's not a mandate. Hmm. It's not an imperative. Um, at the end of most church services, you will get some kind of final, it's often called the final blessing, but it will include a benediction. The Anglican tradition, one that I'm quite familiar with, is go out into the world to love and serve the Lord. And then the response of the congregation is in the name of Christ, amen, or, or something like that. Hmm. To go out into the world to love and serve God. That's not an imperative. 
It's a benediction that flows out of a blessing. It's trying to give you something as a gift, but the gift is something that you have to that you you have to take it up and unpack it as a gift and pursue it. But it's trying to give you an energy, and it's it's a self fulfilling prophecy. That's that's the intent behind a benediction. Hmm. So the first quote unquote commandment in the Bible, which embraces the whole of culture formation and so forth, life as a whole. Is not itself a commandment. It's a benediction. Hmm. God blessed them and said, and then the call to fill things so that God may become all in all is a benediction, not a, not an imperative, not a commandment. Hmm. Now, if you allow that to be the first thing that God says to human beings, which which it is in Scripture, then all of the commandments. That come later can be heard in the light of an original benediction, in terms of the primary spirit in which they're said. It changes the spirituality of response. Hmm. Let me make an argument here to back up what I'm saying. God calls us to love, to love our neighbour as, as we love ourselves. The call to love is not a commandment which can be obeyed. Love is not about obedience; it's about love. Hmm. Right, the heart of the law is about love. That means that even the law, in its beginnings, is not about imperatives and obedience. The call to love is about grace that we are called into. When Jesus says, "I give you a new commandment," what Jesus is doing is he's using the language of commandments. But the new commandment is actually not a commandment; <laughs> it's、um, a call. And we love, Scripture says, because God first loved us.、Hmm. And it's not well, God saying, "I loved you, so now I have every right to ask you to love other people." The love that we receive from God empowers us to love other people.、Hmm. This sets the tone and changes the vibe for the whole of Scripture if it's heard in a certain way.、Hmm. What's God's tone, tone of voice? The text doesn't. Tell you what the tone of voice is because you have to read it. <laughs> so, why is it important to read scripture today? If we can get in touch with the original spirit of it, that could spark a whole different way of engaging the world,、mm. um, and the scriptures could really come alive as a liberating force. So, we began this interview talking about how to begin. Reading the Bible, and we'll end it talking about how to begin reading the Bible as well. But in particular, how to begin reading the Bible as if it's a movie or a novel. And you have a particular novel that briefly illustrate elements of what you just talked about. Yeah, I do. I mean, the question of where do you start with Scripture? Genesis is a great place to start, but. Some people might like to start with, let's say, the Book of Ruth, which is a short book. It's intriguing. Female characters at the centre. Another place, though, and and often people will recommend the Gospels, and I would recommend the Gospels. And you can pick any any of the four Gospels, but、um, Matthew's Gospel. I'm just going to make a plug for Matthew's Gospel. What you might find, if you read holistically, 
and for intrigue, intrigue, not just clarity. It's like the scriptures are, are, are written to intrigue us. <laughs> the parables, the first parable that you get in Matthew's gospel is the parable of the sower. Mm -hmm. Now, what's interesting is you get an explanation of the parable of the sower afterwards, which is unusual. But the intrigue is actually deepened because the explanation of, of the parable of the sower is itself couched in parable language. <laughs> and the parable of the sower is a parable about the nature of parables. Hmm. Once you see that, it absolutely makes sense why it's first, why it introduces all of the other parables, and why the quote-unquote explanation of the parable is itself in the same vein. It's fascinating. But the other thing I'll just mention with Matthew is, um, so I recently read a novel by the, the French novelist André Gide, um, and in English it's, it's a novella, it's called Straight is the Gate, and that's a phrase that's lifted from scripture. And the novel itself is a portrayal of a certain kind of spirituality which is so narrow that it's like human life is squeezed out. Mm. You can't get through this narrow passageway without leaving your leaving life itself behind. And I won't say anything more other than to recommend it. It's and it was written in 1909, I think, and uh, it's a brilliant expose, as it were, of a certain kind of spirituality. So, but um, that phrase shows up in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 7, verse 13, let's say. So Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. But the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So you could read that and plug that into a certain kind of self-denial spirituality in which you know, if life isn't hard, then you don't trust that you're doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. But reading holistically, um, this language shows up again later in Matthew's Gospel. And you can read the two references together, and it starts to make sense in terms of the spirit in which Jesus is um, exploring that image. For us. So Matthew 19, 24, Jesus said to the disciples, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. So threading the needle is a phrase that we use, right, for the almost impossible task that you can just about, if you really concentrate, you can do it. And the camel image. It's thought that the, the eye of the needle is a reference to a particular kind of gate in which you can just squeeze a camel through, but you've got to take everything off the camel, including yourself. Then you can get the camel through, and then you can put the stuff that you were journeying with back on the camel again. But the transition, it's like the birth canal. Now, it's the birth canal into the new age. And the point is not... The road ahead is always going to be narrow and cramped and hard. The transition is hard because you've got to unload everything as you go through mm. into this new life. 
But the imagery suggests that once the camel is through, you can put everything back on the camel. But now a new journey has begun. It's an apocalyptic transition in which everything comes to an end, but everything is reborn. Mm. Now, if you take just the straight gate image out of context in which it would have been heard originally, you end up with a spirituality that is it's warped. What's so interesting, I find, is if you read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, there's a paragraph at the end which actually talks about becoming a Christian and giving up everything, but everything will be given back to you. Hmm. And it's as if it's actually a meditation on Matthew 19. And the straight is the gate spirituality in this novel. It's the demanding, imperative-laden self-denial. I call this the Buckley's mixture hermeneutic. <laughs> so the slogan for Buckley's for years was, it tastes awful, but it works. <laughs> And it's very clever because it does taste awful. So you think, well, because it tastes awful, but it works. You hear that as it tastes awful, therefore it works. Because they're not going to lie that it tastes awful. So therefore, they're not going to lie about the fact that it works. So the tasting awful is itself evidence of it working. That's how that works. It's very, very clever. It's called the Buckley's mixture fallacy in my vocabulary. <laughs> now, we swallow that as Christians in terms of readings of scripture that taste bad, and we think, well, it must be the truth, because the truth is hard. Now, the camel passing through the eye of the needle, it's hard. Those who lose their lives will save them. Those who save their lives will lose them. Everything comes to an end, and everything is reborn and you cannot control what everything is going to be. And the scriptures are about that, hmm. right? You give up everything, everything will be given back to you, and more means not just you get the old stuff back plus a lot of new stuff. No, everything will be renewed so it expands in its meaning. Hmm. That's the kind of adventure of meaning that we can be on with the scriptures if we allow them to speak in that way. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Nick. And uh, we look forward to hearing a lot more from you uh, in the near future. Thank you. Yes. And that brings us to our final segment, What's Your Pleasure? This is where we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun. The movies and television shows we're watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. So Mark, what's your pleasure? Well, Danielle, this week my pleasure is a little bit unorthodox. I'm not going with the typical music or TV or food. Um, this week I'm going with a particular Twitter follow. Um, and if you look at my Twitter, which is at Mark Standish, I don't necessarily recommend it because I actually don't <laughs> post very much. And I don't follow very many people. I follow about eight people probably. But one of the people I started following during the election um, coverage was this person, Zupa Grachawa, at Grachawa2. 
G-R-O-C-H-O-W-A number two. And I found out about Zuba because I was trying to get the batches of votes as they were coming in to see like in Georgia, especially like when Georgia was coming back for in mm. Biden's favor with <laughs> the Fulton County's uh, uh, votes coming in late. And there's another follow called Decision Desk HQ. Mm-hmm. And they were publishing on Twitter the votes as they were coming in. And this person, Zupa, on each post was replying and doing a statistical bre- breakdown in the change uh, from one batch to the next. So you would know how many percent of the new vote the Democrats got versus how many the Republicans got. And I started following this person and... I found what they did really helpful, and so did other people on Twitter. In fact, some people went so far as to buy something for Zupa <laughs> on Uber Eats so that they had dinner, and another person donated uh, in Zupa's name. That became the thing. There were a few people that donated in this person's name. So I just wanted to take this moment to shout out Zupa for their great work. <laughs> I feel like this is kind of a strange iteration of your fanatical appreciation for sports statistics and play-by-play of a kind. Yeah, I like I like to break things down. You know, I have an analytical mind. I don't like analytical philosophy, but I have an analytical mind. <laughs> um, and Zupa helped me feel be able to like, I mean, I guess this is like a mastery discourse a little bit like help me feel in control when everything was spinning out of control uh so i appreciate that and i and i treat sports similarly um i like statistical breakdowns i like analytics in sports for the most part mm. so like for example there's a website raptors republic that goes through and does a lot of analytical breakdowns of each game and uh, each player for the raptors and so that's kind of like, that's another one of my pleasures is Raptors Republic. In specific, there's uh, one host who hosts the podcast and also uh, writes for them, uh, Samson Folk. If you're into the Raptors, uh, he's, he's a really good mind of breaking down basketball um, and doesn't dumb things down too much. So I appreciate that. So your true pleasure is statistical analysis. It's, it's about like breaking things down more than the statistics. You know, I don't like statistics for statistics sake, mm. I guess. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, Danielle, after my strange pleasures, what's your pleasure this week? I find like this is a strange thing that I like to do is to make very tangential uh, connections from what someone just said to the point that I want to make. So, <laughs> um, my pleasure is somewhat related to comparisons i want to say so recently there was a uh quote unquote remake i think that's a debatable thing to some people for some reason it's a remake of rebecca that came out on netflix and there's a number of like film and tv adaptations of it originally it's a novel Mm. Um, maybe a novella it's not very long but there's a famous uh hitchcock movie version and a couple of other like a masterpiece theater kind of thing so there's a few different versions that have kind of cropped up over the years um and then there was this this recent one that just came out i'd heard about rebecca the story and the hitchcock version of the film 
I think there had been some buzz going around about it prior to this new thing coming out. But I hadn't ever read it. I had never seen anything about it. I didn't know anything about the story. Um, so I just did a thing I usually avoid doing, which is to jump into the latest and greatest iteration of a thing with no background whatsoever. Mm. So I did that and it was all right. Like it was very, the costuming was really beautiful. Like I did mm. love the costumes. I thought that was very enjoyable. And you know, it's very cinematic and it's got some good actors and stuff in it. So it's, it's uh, enjoyable with no expectations, let's say. Mm-hmm. So my, my method was served it to its best potential, I think. Uh, but then I decided, uh, ultimately, I want to get to this Hitchcock version because I think it won like best picture or best director or something at some point when it came out. Hmm. But it is extremely difficult to find. So before I am able to somehow dig up a way to find the Hitchcock version, I have in the meantime actually read the book. Hmm. And it's just interesting kind of going from one version to the next and then anticipating another version to kind of like get a sense of the difference, different choices that get made along the way of like adapting things because there's some very obvious changes that happen to this newer version for no clear reason i'm not sure why they made those changes to be honest hmm. um but then from hearsay i understand that there are also some significant changes in the hitchcock version but kind of out of necessity or being forced to from censors in the day and all these things so hmm. it's just been you know taking a step back it's been somewhat interesting to me to see the slightly different iterations of a ostensibly same thing. So that has been my pleasure. Hmm. That's it for our show this week. If you're interested in hearing more from Nick and in joining any of his current and upcoming courses, which are all now available remotely, You can visit our website at www.icscanada.edu. You can also email our registrar, Elizabeth Aras, at academic-registrar at icscanada.edu with any questions you might have. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can find more information on the website just mentioned. And if anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow Mark as at Mark Standish. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember. Following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.